Good morning. Good morning. Oh, still soft. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, a little bit better. We'll, we'll work on that next week. <laughs> um, for those of you who may not know me, I am Pastor Abraham. I'm the pastor here uh, at Sun Valley, and, and Sun Valley is a place where we believe in, in our three there are three core things. Our pillars are faith, community, and hope. And we believe in, the, in growing faith, building community, and in the hope of Jesus. And, and today we are, we are continuing on with our, with our series. Our series is called The Greatest Story, The Unexpected Narrative of Jesus. And in, in this series, we are exploring some of the major and, and minor stories of the Bible, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And we're discovering the unconventional and, and often controversial ways in which we see God's love through these stories. And, and we say unconventional and controversial because what we find through the stories is that God's love often does not follow conventional, political, cultural, or social expectations of the time. While God works with the culture and the society of the time that he's working in, he's also working to bring people to a truer and better understanding of who he is and the radically inclusive love of Jesus. And so this week will be in our second sermon of, of, uh, of just two sermons in, in, in the book of Chronicles. Uh, so this is part two of Chronicles. And so last week, we found out that, that the book of Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, is, is the retelling of the same stories that we find in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. So the Chronicles are, are the same stories as Samuel and Kings just retold and repackaged a little differently. And so we also learned last week that the book of the Chronicles was written sometime between 200 and 400 years after the book of Kings. So after all the stuff in Kings takes place, after the last records of Kings are written, the chronicler writes about 200 to 400 years after all that time. In fact, the, the, in terms of the date of authorship, in terms of when the, the book of Chronicles is actually written, the traditional order of the books of the Hebrew Bible have the book of Chronicles at the very end of the Old Testament, or of what we call the Old Testament, right before what, what we have as Christians is the New Testament. Uh, so normally you'll find uh, in, in, in our Bibles, in the Christian Bible, have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, um, Joshua, or is it Numbers, Deuteronomy? Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, uh, the book of Judges, then I think it's the book of Ruth, and then we'll have First and Second Samuel, second, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, right? Ruth is after, sometime after. But um, it's actually not that way in the original Hebrew. The original Hebrew has Chronicles at the very end of the Old Testament because it's one of the later books written in what we call the canonical Old Testament. And, and part of the reason that we're not going to spend too many sermons on Chronicles is because we've already kind of gone through most of the same stories through Samuel and through Kings, and so uh, I don't necessarily want to lose people as we repeat uh, the same stories. Uh, but, but that doesn't mean you should skip the book of Chronicles. Don't skip it, because it's a very important book. Uh, I'd love to go over the stories and compare each and every one of the stories, but I'm sure we'd lose people along the way, so we won't do that. What I'm, what I'm hoping to do today, at least, is to inspire you to read the book of Chronicles, uh, to inspire you by, by teaching you and, and by showing you some of the themes and ideas that the author of Chronicles presents in his book. And so my hope would be that when you learn the purpose of the book and, and why it's the same stories repeated, that you would see things hopefully in a new perspective and that you would see how the author accomplishes its, uh, their goals by retelling and rehashing the same stories as Samuel 
and Kings. So today, we're not going to be in one part of Chronicles. We're going to be kind of jumping around a bit to seeing some of the themes. So we're starting today in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1. And the verses will be available for you on the screen if you want to follow along with us. Uh, this will be the NIV uh, version, New International Version. So it starts this, 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1. This section is titled, and maybe some of your Bibles it might say, Historical Records from Adam to Abraham. And you know genealogies are a hoot, so we're starting here. <laughs> chapter 1, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalel, Jared. There's no intro, it's just jumping into names. Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, you guys might know Noah. The sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubel, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphtah, Tog uh, Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, the Kittites, and the Rodanites. That's exciting, right? You guys are like, yes, genealogies. This, this is the stuff we read the most, right? This is probably the stuff you guys skip over. Uh, and, and we could read the rest. I know you're excited to read the rest, but I'll let you do that on your own time. So we're going to skip that for now. Uh, but the, the chronicler starts off his book um, primarily, like, I mean, the whole book of Chronicles is primarily about the dynasty uh, of the kingship in the nation of Judah. And so the, the chronicler traces back this lineage of kings in Judah all the way back to the very first man. Uh, let's go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, all the way back to the very first man, it starts with Adam. The reason that Chronicles starts with this genealogy starting from Adam is because the chronicler wants you to understand that all of these stories that will precede this genealogy, all of the stories that happen next, all are, all are part of a much grander story. They're part of a much bigger story than just these small historical accounts. The chronicler wants you to understand that the stories he's about to tell have roots all the way back to the beginning of time with the first man, Adam. That's what he wants you to understand. The first nine chapters of Chronicles are a little rough because it's all genealogy. It's all like this. <laughs> First Chronicles 1 through 9 is all genealogy. And the chronicler traces the current heads of families in Israel, all 12 of the tribes, all the way back to the sons of Jacob, all the way back to Adam. And so uh, the original 12 sons that formed the tribe, the sons of Jacob. But if you read the listing from 1 Chronicles 1 to 1 Chronicles 9, you'll notice that the author gives attention to two specific tribes. Two out of the 12 gives very special attention. For some reason, and we don't know why, the, the author skips actually the tribes of Dan and Zebulun. He doesn't even mention them. Uh, but the chronicle spends, and, and I, I actually went through the Bible to count these, 19 verses on Simeon, 10 verses in the tribe of Reuben, 11 verses in the tribe of Gad, 8 verses on the half-tribe of Manasseh, 5 verses in the tribe of Issachar, 6 verses in the tribe of Benjamin, 1 verse, just 1, on Naphtali, 9 verses in the half-tribe of Ephraim, 10 verses on the tribe of Asher, and another 49 verses for Benjamin and Saul. And the reason he repeats the tribe of Benjamin and Saul is because he's about to jump into Saul's legacy, Saul's kingship, but he skips all the stories of Saul in, in, in 1 Samuel. The only thing the chronicler focuses on is the last moments of Saul where Saul commits um, suicide. So if we're generous and we count the last 49 verses of Saul's lineage, the chronicler spends an average of 14 verses on those nine tribes that he lists. Just 14, that's an average. But he spends a whole 99 verses on the tribe of Judah. And he spends a whole 81 verses on the tribe of Levi. So think about that for a second. 
What is this author trying to portray? What is this author trying to tell you? If, if he spends 99 verses on Judah, 81 verses on Levi, but only an average of 14 verses on the other nine tribes, there's something about Judah and Levi that the chronicler is trying to tell you. And so the reason that he does this is because Judah is the line that David descends from. David, uh, maybe one of the most famous kings, you guys might know him from David and Goliath. Um, so David is, is this kingly uh, person, the, one of the, the, the best kings that they had in Israel, followed by Solomon. And so David is of the tribe of Judah. So the chronicler spends a long time talking about the tribe of Judah. But the chronicler also focuses on the tribe of Levi. And the reason that he focuses on the tribe of Levi is because the tribe of Levi is the descendant or the line from which all the priests come from. So all the priests that give sacrifices in the temple, all the priests that play music, all the priests that take care of the temple, every single priest in Israel comes from the tribe of Levi. And the chronicler does this, focuses on these two tribes because of two reasons. His primary focus in the book is God's promise to David to always have a descendant of David on the throne of Israel, because God promises him that. So he traces the lineage of David all the way until after the exile, showing that God will keep his promise. But the secondary focus of Chronicles, and the reason that he spends 81 verses in the tribe of Levi, is the temple in Jerusalem. The author wants to focus on the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God promised that he would live among his people, where the spirit would dwell. So he's focusing on the centralized location for the worship of Yahweh. This is the God of the Israelites. So, so much of the Chronicles stories will highlight and put an emphasis on where and how and why the temple was built. And so we're going to look at this 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 10 to 14. And this kind of sums up the whole purpose of the book of Chronicles. Uh, God is speaking, I declare to you, that the Lord will build a house for you. This is the temple. When your days are over, he's speaking to David, and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offsprings or your sons to succeed, to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me. He's talking about Solomon. And I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take away my love from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. So these verses kind of sum up the two main focuses of Chronicles, the Davidic line, the line of David, and God's temple, right? So when the author focuses specifically on is, is the promise of a coming Messiah. Because if we, if we read uh, the books of Isaiah, if we read the books of Jeremiah, if we read the books of all these prophets, these prophets talk about this, this new king that would come. The king that God would set up, that would sit on the throne forever, was this person called the Messiah was this person called the Savior, the one who would come to deliver Israel, and it would come from the line of David. And so this chronicler is focusing on this line, the Davidic line, because this is where the Messiah would come from. And there was also another promise that God would someday build a temple that would never be destroyed, where all the peoples of the earth would come together, Gentiles and Jews would come, and Isaiah says this, they would come to the Mount of Zion and they would worship God there in spirit and in truth, and God would be with them forever. God would never take his presence away from them. This is the promise of a future to come. This is what the chronicler is focusing on. And so we're going to read another few verses. First Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1 to 5. This one's interesting. It says this, these were the sons of David. This is, an, this is another part of our genealogies. These were the sons of David born to him in Hebron. The firstborn was Amnon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. The second, Daniel, the son of Abigail of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, daughter of Talmai, king of Jeshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith. 
the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithraim, by his wife Egla. These six were born to David in Hebron, where he reigned seven years and six months. David reigned in Jerusalem 33 years, and these were the children born to him there, Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. These four children were born or were by Bathsheba, daughter of Amiel. You guys know who Bathsheba is? We've kind of covered this story. Bathsheba is the woman that in 1 Samuel chapter 17, he commits adultery with, right? Or 2 Samuel chapter 17, he sees this woman bathing on the roof and, and, and he, he lusts after her and, and he takes her and then he kills her husband in order to, to cover up this pregnancy that, that was unplanned. But you'll notice that the chronicler simply calls Bathsheba the daughter of Amiel. He doesn't focus on, on, on the fact that she used to be the wife of Uriah. He doesn't focus on the fact that there's adultery at all. And, and if you read the book of Chronicles, there's actually no story of David committing the adultery. And that's one of the main differences between Chronicles and Samuel, is that the, the author does not retell any of the negative stories about David. It's all positive stories. So there's no David decapitating Goliath. There's no David on the run from Saul. There's no David collecting, this is a real story, collecting the foreskins of 10,000 Philistines. There's no David committing adultery with Bathsheba and killing his best friend over it to cover it up. There's none of those stories. The stories of, of David's sin, which you read last time in the census, uh, is only mentioned because the place where the angel stops is the place where the temple of Jerusalem will be built by Solomon. So along with the removal of some of these blemishes or these negative moments in David's life, there are also new stories that Samuel doesn't include. So this author includes stories that highlight David as this priestly king, David as this king who's able to offer sacrifices to God, David as this king who has this back and forth communion with God, David as, as this person who becomes the new Moses. So in Samuel, there's no mention of David making preparations for the temple that Solomon would build, but in 1 Chronicles 28, we read that God gave David specific instructions on how to build the temple in the same way that God gave specific instructions to Moses on how to build the tabernacle. I know this might not all be entirely interesting to you, but we're getting somewhere, believe me. So, so Moses, when he was out in the wilderness, God gave him specific instructions. He wrote it down. This is how you are to build the temple, exactly, by detail, detail by detail. And so in 1 Chronicles 28, we have the same story being repeated, except this time it's God speaking to David, telling him this is how you are to build this, this new house for me, detail by detail. And, and, and it's interesting because the chronicler focuses on these different stories that are found in, in other texts as a way of reinterpreting these old stories in a new context. So this chronicler, this author, takes the stories that people already knew, omits some of them, and focuses on new, one, on new ones because he wants to focus on the old stories in a different light, in a different context. And this is our first lesson for today. Our first lesson is this. The past can be rewritten. The past can be rewritten. And now I'm, not obvi I'm obviously not talking about like the paradox that is time travel. I'm not... <laughs> We're not talking about that. But what we're talking about is, is rewriting the way that we used to understand the past. Do you guys follow so far? We're not talking about actually physically changing the past. We're talking about rewriting the way that we understood the past. And that's what the chronicler does. That's what the author does. Because he's living a couple hundred years after these events, after the records of Samuel and Kings. So he writes, understanding what happens after these stories already takes place. So when he writes his account, this northern kingdom of Israel has already been destroyed by the Assyrians. 
The southern kingdom of Judah has already been conquered by Babylon. The first temple that Solomon built was destroyed. All right? When the chronicler is writing, the Persian Empire has already come in, they've defeated Babylon, and King Cyrus has already given this decree for Israelites to resettle Judah, resettle Jerusalem, and rebuild the temple now known as the Second Temple. By the time the chronicler writes his account, the Second Temple is already rebuilt, and hope has been restored to, Israelite, to, to the Israelites. So it's in this context that the chronicler writes or retells Israel's history. You see, the author doesn't expect you to believe that David did nothing wrong. He, does, he doesn't expect that at all. He knows that if you're reading the story of the Bible, you can go back to Samuel. You can read all the mistakes that Samuel makes. He knows that you can find out all this stuff on your own. But where Samuel and Kings ends on the destruction of Israel. You see, Samuel and Kings ends when when Israel is destroyed by the Assyrians. It ends where Judah is captured by by the Babylonians. That's the end of the book of Samuel and Kings. But Chronicle ends differently. Chronicle ends on on, on this hope, on this restoration, because the same stories that he's telling ended with despair, with exile, with destruction, with slavery. But now Chronicles is retelling those same stories, but he's telling the other ending that they didn't know about yet. Just follow so far, because I know it can be confusing, right? He's lived a couple hundred years. He knows how that story ends up, so he writes that same story knowing that everything turns out pretty well. He's, he's rewriting the way we understood that past, knowing that there is already a hope and a restoration. Kings, the book of Kings ends not knowing what's coming next. The last thing recorded in those books is that Judah is still under Babylonian captivity. The king of Judah is is killed, but the people of Israel are exiled and captive. Uh, Israel and Judah are destroyed. The temple is no more. The whole land is just desolated. But Chronicles knows that Israel continues to survive. He knows that despite the exile, despite the, the, the captivity, despite the slavery, he knows that the people of God thrive. He knows that Jerusalem eventually gets rebuilt. He knows that Judah eventually gets resettled. He knows that the temple eventually gets rebuilt and that sacrifices are offered once more to this God of Yahweh. Chronicler isn't changing history. He's just reinterpreting those stories in the light of the hope that he knows takes place. It's following. So you see, your story might be filled with moments of doubt and despair. Your story might have moments of defeats and mistake. Your story might be full of regrets and failures. But those things don't have to define the rest of your story. Did you guys hear that? Those things don't have to define the rest of your story. The past can be rewritten. You can rewrite your story knowing that Jesus turned your failures into victories. You can rewrite your story knowing that Jesus turned your regrets into the resolve to do better. You can rewrite your story knowing the hope that Jesus has brought into your life already. So your story doesn't have to be defined by by tragedy and mistakes. It can be defined by the expectation and the hope that God will continue to be good like he already has been. The way he's resolved all of these negative stories and turned it into something for good, Chronicler says you can count on that. You can count on God being the same good God that he was back then. And it's interesting because it's not just the negative stories 
that are omitted. The book of Chronicles actually doesn't give any attention to the stories of the kings of the northern tribes. So you might know the stories in 1 Kings, the stories of Elijah and Elisha and all these prophets. All of that takes place in the northern kingdom of Israel, but the chronicler just omits that. He doesn't want anything to do with that. And while, it, while, while book of Kings and Samuels goes back and forth between Israel and Judah, uh, focusing primarily on the northern kings, Chronicles exclusively focuses on the tribe of Judah, exclusively focuses on the southern kingdom. The reason being is because, one, he's focusing on the Davidic line of kings, but also because Judah, for the most part, has remained faithful to Yahweh. Judah, for the most part, hasn't participated in some of the idolatry that the northern kingdom has. And so the book of Chronicles, if you read it, there's a system of cause and effect that the book of Kings and Samuels doesn't have. The book of Chronicles, if you read it carefully, you'll notice that whenever a king follows God or follows the Lord, we read that God blesses that king. That's in the book of Chronicles. Whenever a king turns to idolatry and does something against the commands of God, we read that they are punished either by disease or by military losses. The way that the story is written in Chronicles appears to emphasize an immediate reward and punishment system. And the reason it's written that way is not necessarily because it's a belief that reflected God accurately, but, but rather it's an example. The, the book of Chronicles is setting up an example for the audience that would be reading this book. You see, the people reading this book would have been resettling Judah. The people reading this book would have been rebuilding or have already rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. They would have been worshiping at this new temple. The temple would have re been rebuilt. So the author is not just in, in, intending to inspire hope of the Messiah and the future temple. He's also trying to inspire you to see the mistakes of the past and to learn from them. The book is trying to help you see all the stuff that they did wrong and to learn from that and not to repeat those same exact mistakes. He's trying to let you see, man, like God blessed the people that followed him and unfortunately, bad things happened when they chose to disobey or when they chose to leave God as a consequence of their own choices. And so the chronicler is saying this, if you choose to continue to follow God, you'll be blessed. And so this is our, this is our second lesson for today. Our second lesson is this, the past can shape our present. The past can shape our present. While the past doesn't have to define you, it can definitely shape you. See, the author was trying to, to shape the present generation by teaching them about the successes and failures of the people before them. He's trying to, to teach them so they don't repeat the same mistakes of the past. So the present generation could learn from those mistakes because if they fail to learn from the past, they would be doomed to repeat the same failures. Our past has the ability to shape our present, but we get to choose how. This is the important part. Our past can shape our present, but we get to choose how. We can let our past be stumbling blocks, or it can become the building blocks from which we learn, adapt, and grow. How we choose to view our past also determines how it affects our present. If we only look at our past through the lens of regret, and, and pain, we prime ourselves to view our present circumstances with hopelessness and defeat. But if we allow the faith, if we allow our faith in Jesus to change the way we see our past, to see God's blessings and guidance and, and providence, if we give ourselves the opportunity to see our present with hope and expectation and confidence, then we prime ourselves to be in a good place, even when the world is crumbling around us. Even when the world is crumbling around us. Right? If we choose to see our past and choose to see how God has brought us through that, 
despite the mistakes, despite the failures, despite all that bad and negative stuff, if we choose to see what the good that God has done, we place ourselves in a position to be content and to be happy with the story now, even when the world is crumbling around us. And the author of Chronicles knows this. He knows that the, the past is presented to this, the, the way the past is presented to this current generation could shape the way that they interact with their God in the present. And so the people, they could read the mistakes of David and all the other kings and Samuel and kings. They could take that and say, oh man, we're just doomed to repeat that. Oh, we, we can't change anything. But the chronicler knows that if he presents the past in the light of God's goodness, in the light of the hope that God would eventually bring, that these people would then have a hope that they would look forward to the promise of restoration that we find in the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah, the promise of the Messiah, the promise of the rebuilding of a temple, the promise of God's presence with us forever. He knows that the past can shape our present, but we get to determine how, whether it becomes stumbling blocks or building blocks. For our last lesson, we're going to jump to the end of 2 Chronicles. This is 2 Chronicles chapter 36. It says this, so, so far we have, we have two main themes. Chronicles is focusing on the Davidic line, the hope of the Messiah, the temple line, the, the Levite line, the hope of the, the future temple. He knows that the past can affect our present. He knows that the way we interpret our past can, can be changed depending on what we experience now. And so this is, a, this is our, our third lesson. Uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15, it says this, The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again and again and again and again and again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But the people who received God's messengers, they mocked God's messengers. They despised their words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. So he brought up against them the king of, Babylonian, uh, of the Babylonians who killed their young men with a sword in the sanctuary and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the places and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile the, uh, to, to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. Pause there for a second, just at verse 20. Before the kingdom of Persia came to power, I'm just going to read that again, verse 19. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall in Jerusalem. They burned all the places and destroyed everything of value there. They carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors. That's where Kings ends. That's where the story of Kings ends. That's how that book ends. But Second Chronicles continues. It says this, until the kingdom of Persia came to power, the land, you see, enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of its desolation, it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. But in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it into writing. Verse 23, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all of the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. See the different note that Chronicles ends on than Kings did. 
And I want to focus on this last verse, verse 23, because the author does something very interesting that isn't obvious to the English, English translation. Uh, put the next slide up. This is, yeah, this is the one. Uh, 2 Chronicles 36, verse 23. This is kind of a, a transliteration, a literal translation of what the Hebrew actually says in the order it says it. And it says this, Thus said Cyrus, king of Persia, all kingdoms of the earth have been given to me by Yahweh, God of the heavens, and he has laid a charge on me to build to him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you from all his people, Yahweh his God is with him, and he will go up. He will go up. See, the way the, the chronicler ends the book is, is pretty peculiar. Because this last phrase, he will go up, it's this verb that he ends on. And the verb is, is it, precisely, it's in the imperfect tense. And the imperfect tense, this is what the imperfect tense. The imperfect tense is used to indicate an action that has not yet been completed or will be completed at some point in the present or future. Do you guys follow so far? An imperfect tense is an action that has not yet been completed or will be completed in the present or sometime in the future. You guys following so far? So this edict that this Cyrus, king of Persia, commands, he says, I will build a temple to, the house in uh, to, to God in the house of Jerusalem, and I will also resend people back to Judah to resettle it. And the way the chronicle ends it is saying, this command has not yet been completed. It's sometime in the future. This temple would be built sometime in the future. This, these people resettling the land would be sometime in the future. But what's interesting is that all of this is actually history to the Chronicles. Chronicles has already has been written long after this edict, a couple hundred years actually, after the temple of Jerusalem, after the resettling of Judah. So why would the book end on this idea that what has already happened hasn't yet happened. Pause to, to, to mull that over for a second, right? Because this, this is heavy. I know this is heavy. We're, we're literally condensing two books, like 60-something chapters into a 30-minute sermon or 40 minutes or however long we're going, so this is heavy, right? Why would the author end with this idea that an action that has already been completed has not yet been completed? Why would he end in the imperfect tense because these stories have already been completed. Cyrus has already long gone. The edict has already been fulfilled. Jerusalem has already been resettled. The temple has already been rebuilt. These are the stories that we can find in Ezra and Nehemiah. The people have already come back. But there's a reason that the chronicler ends the book in this way, because he's not just focusing on the present Davidic line, on the present temple. He's focusing on these promises that are to come. He's saying this, because I understand you've rebuilt Jerusalem. I understand you've already rebuilt the temple, but that's not the end of the story. You guys following so far? I understand you've already done all this. I understand that's already been completed. He says, but that's not the end of the story. The chronicler understands that God's promise is that one day there would be a king from the line of David that would rule forever. That one day the Messiah would come that one day the temple would be rebuilt where Yahweh would dwell with his people for Israel. And while Jerusalem was already restored, while the temple was already restored, the chronicler says this, this is not the end of the promise. Because I know you have hope now. I know you're pretty happy with the fact that you're returning home and you rebuilt the temple of God, but this is not the end of the story. Don't let your hope end here. Don't let your expectations end here. This is not the end of the story. And at the heart of the entire book of Chronicles is this idea 
that the same way that God had been faithful to Israel, the same way that God had stepped in when they cried out for help, the same way that God had preserved a remnant or a group remaining of his people despite captivity, despite slavery, despite exile, the same way that God had made a way for his people to return home and rebuild that temple, in the same way God would continue to be faithful, God would continue to be good, God would continue to be restorative and redemptive in the same way that story didn't end. This story also isn't over yet. This is our final lesson for today. Our final lesson is this. The past is our hope for the future. The past is our hope for the future. You see, the book of Chronicles is actually not really a historical book as much as it is a prophetic book. It represents God's view on Israel's past and boldly announces that the exile and disappointment are not the end of the story. The same author gives hope, the same hope that we find in the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the other prophets. When we see the way that God uses our broken past to bring healing into our present, we gain hope for the future that God promises. A future without pain and suffering a future without tears and sorrow, a future without failures and disappointments. Our heartbreaks and our setbacks now are not the end of the story. God will eventually bring restoration and healing. But this is another important part of the book of Chronicles. Even the restoration and healing that God brings today still isn't the end of the story. The happy ending you think you have, still not the end. There's a happier ending to come. That's what the book of Chronicles says. The Messiah, he says, will one day bring complete restoration and redemption. The Messiah will one day sit on his throne and rule in justice and peace. The temple will one day be restored and God's presence will always be with his people. That's the hope to come, a hope based on the present leading us into the future. I invite the band to come on up as we begin to close here. He's the chronicler understands this, that the past can be rewritten. We get to choose how we interpret our story. We get to turn our stumbling blocks into stepping stones. We can choose to see our story in the light of heartbreak and failure, or we can choose to see our story in the light of the awesome work of redemption that Jesus is currently doing in us. The past can shape our present. The way that we interpret our past determines how we live in the present. We can see our story as a history of bad choices and feel lost and hopeless, doomed to repeat the same mistakes. Or we can see our history and grab onto the transformative power of Jesus and learn from those mistakes, learn to live better and to do better all through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is our last lesson, our most important one. The past is our hope for the future. See, the story isn't over. God's work isn't yet finished. As we speak, our story is still being written. And the chronicler wants you to understand that. He wants you to know that the exile was not the end for Israel. That even the little good that eventually came was still not the best they could hope for. He wanted them to know that God has a greater promise in store. That God has far better things for them than the things that they were experiencing currently. And in that same way, I want you to know this, that the final pages of your story have not yet been written. Your setbacks are not the end for you. Your story doesn't end there. And even the good that you experience today is just a fraction of a fraction of a fraction 
of a fraction of the good that Jesus has waiting for you at the end of the story. See, this was Jesus' promise to his disciples. He says, one day I will return for you. And this is Jesus' promise to you. He promises that he is coming back for you and will one day set all things right. His promise is that today is not yet the end of the story. That's the hope that we cling on to. That's the hope for the future. That is the hope of Jesus. Amen.